Welcome to Season 3, Episode 20 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Oliver Mole. Oliver is a writer and his memoir, Train Lord, is out now through Penguin. Welcome to the show, Oliver. Thank you so much. How are you going? Yeah, I'm pretty good, apart from the headache we just spoke about. Um, but it was a late night, and but I'm yeah. sure you can tell me lots about dealing with that. Uh, yeah, we can, we can make it a full workshop. <laughs> so you're over in Paris at the moment. Do you want to tell me how you got there and how's life over in that beautiful city? Yeah, we've moved to, we've moved to Paris um and yeah it's um it's a huge change from um Tbilisi Georgia where I've been living yeah for about the past year um and I'd also been I'd lived in Georgia for six months before COVID as well um basically I ended up there because um when I was trying to write Train Lord and trying to figure out just how the hell you even uh how anyone how how you would be able to write a book about a 10-month migraine which is completely unknowable and unfathomable even um to me now but i was trying to find ways into that experience i suppose and so um i did this very romantic um in hindsight romantic at the time it felt like out of necessity and i and i quit my job on the railway and um moved to spain where i'd planned to write this book um, but I'd mucked up my visa, so <laughs> I could only stay there for three months. Um, it was a beautiful three months. I I learned Spanish in that three months um, because I basically just stopped English. And it was, um, yeah, by the end of it, I was thinking in Spanish. I was dreaming in Spanish. I was talking in Spanish. I'd kind of renounced English to a certain capacity. Um, and I just wanted to say that I found that really interesting because when I had done that it was like the English part of my brain had turned off and so when I was just thinking in Spanish I wasn't thinking in English and because I had a limited vocabulary then this beautiful sort of uh, weight was lifted from my mind because I was very present in everything I was doing and it also meant that when I was writing which was the only thing I was doing in English I could be very focused and intense with that this is all to say I couldn't stay in Spain. So I ended up moving to Albania um, because I needed to get outside the EU. Uh, and so I ended up living on a beach for about three weeks in a tent um, sort of in the south in Saranda. And I was working there, um, which was uh, very cost effective, but um, showers were limited and it was really hot. Um, and then so, yeah, after that, I basically needed to go somewhere else to try and find to try and write and so um i uh, had heard about georgia from an ex-girlfriend and you know i'd heard about the caucasus mountains and how um the hiking there was fantastic and uh apparently they used to give you a bottle of wine on entry when when you <laughs> arrived into the country because they're the the birthplace of wine and so I ended up yeah moving there for six months and um wrote about half the book anyway and then i uh, came home, COVID happened, applied for this miracle grant called the Martin Bequest, which completely changed my life. 
Um, didn't think I would get it, but um, yeah, I received it. And so um, finally, when we were able to leave Australia, so about a year ago, I uh, returned to um, Georgia, Tbilisi. Um, and then about a month later, the war started. So again, it was a huge, uh, Georgia has always been a country that, yeah, um, has, you know, been invaded over and over and over again by um, the Ottoman Empire and, and Russia and, you know, and the Soviet Union and um, living there while the war wasn't exactly happening in Georgia, it did mean that, um, you know, we were, uh, Georgia was sort of inundated with um, Russian uh, refugees, I suppose you would call them, but the situation was more complex because Russia also occupies 20% of Georgia. And so you have, you have an occupation while at the same time um, people who don't want to go to war and people whose bank accounts have been frozen moving there. The upshot was that rent prices skyrocketed and mm. um, yeah, a lot of Georgians sort of can't live in the way that they could previously. And so the, the analogy that I use for Georgia is basically in most countries that you go to, if you were to shake a metaphorical snow globe, then you'd be able to, when the, when every, when the sediment settled, you'd be able to see through it and you can see an outline of a place. You can understand where that country is. And Georgia, it was like, you could shake it and I can't, I can't see if it's going East. I couldn't see if it's going West. Um, um, the main thing about Georgia that really interested me was that, you know, people over 35 spoke um, Georgian and Russian and people under 35 spoke English and Georgian. And it seemed to me like there were two churches there. There was the um, Christian Orthodox or the Georgian Orthodox Church that exists, which is traditionally quite conservative, well, extremely conservative. And then there's another church where the youth, which is extremely counterculture and is passionate about LGBTQ rights. Um, they have like, these other places, which are nightclubs called like Basiani and Khidi, which means bridge. Um, and in 2018, the police came in with rubber bullets and tear gas to Bassiani, which is the main nightclub and is um, it's, it's beneath a sports stadium in an abandoned pool. <laughs> and uh, a bunch of people got arrested. Some people lost their eyes. They came in on the pretense that it was due to um, drugs, but in reality it was because it was a safe space for queer people. Um, they closed all the clubs and then the next day, basically 20,000 people threw a protest and raved, demanding that these spaces become open again. And so eventually the government relented. And so what's interesting about that space is largely there aren't drugs in, in these environments. It's mainly just drinking and uh, maybe a little bit of weed, which is more or less legal, but they are people. It's not like people dance together for a good time. Like people are dancing solo and people are dancing almost as a form of protest and it's it's I've, i haven't encountered many spaces like it so that that's a long way to say that um our you know time in georgia was a was a time of change and upheaval and um anyway yeah now we're in paris which is um very different but um yeah quite beautiful amazing okay you're born in australia i think and you yep. spent quite a lot of your upbringing in the us and yep. then you came back to Australia, to Brisbane, and you've also lived in Sydney and Melbourne. And your first book, Lion Attack, came out in 2015. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your biography and how you got into writing? 
Yeah. Um, I think around the time I was maybe 18, um, I got, yeah, really obsessed with writing. And um, I'd, uh, I'd saved up a bunch of money working in a telecommunications store. And then I um, went to Canada and did a ski season and then spent six months in South America, sort of living off $30 a day and living in hostels and, you know, reading um, those ubiquitous books like um, The Beach by Alex Garland and um, um, oh, what's that other fantastic one? Um, uh, Marching Powder by um, the other Australian, oh, what's his name? Anyway, I'll, I'll remember it, but um, yeah. yeah. And then of course, you know, reading like Jack Kerouac on the road and, you know, all, all these kinds of novels. And, and I was writing these horrific sort of prose poems like very quickly and, um, and I, but I, I enjoyed the output and I enjoyed keeping, um, you know, uh, records and diaries of those times. And so when I returned to um, Australia and moved to Sydney at that point, um, I started studying Spanish, which I really uh, enjoyed, but I still felt a little bit directionless. So I, uh, I applied um, yeah, for RMIT to go study um, creative writing. Um, I'm sure I submitted as part of my portfolio some of these sort of yeah, like terrible prose poems, but for whatever reason, I got accepted. Um, and so I moved to Melbourne. And yeah, I would say it was an obsession because more or less I came up with this quite severe um, sort of uh, application for myself that eventually I think would lead to a certain downfall but at the time I told myself that if I didn't have a book done by the end of that university um, degree then I was then I would be a failure that, that I'd failed and so for three years I wrote a thousand words a day every day and and um, at a certain point yeah it began sort of um maybe on a reference of um joe brainard's i remember his iconic book i remember where each book starts with the phrase i remember um i started sort of uh exploring um my youth in texas and um the more i saw i i think looking back i was quite depressed in texas and i and i couldn't really put my finger on why although in hindsight it was an extremely you know, coming from Canberra, where I'd been living before, to Texas was a was a huge culture shock for a nine year old. And I mean, first of all, everyone goes through puberty when they're like nine or ten years old, and and looks older than me now, perhaps due to the um, hormones in the chicken, or you know, who knows why. Um, so I felt, yeah, kind of, you know, you also like shower um with people like during PE and it's different to Australia because you just have big communal showers and you know I'm I'm not circumcised and and nearly every Australian uh, American is circumcised as well so as a young boy sort of going through um body image related um you know uh tr trying to figure out what that means I think um that very uh masculine very um intensely uh materialistic um intensely um christian um place was a place that i didn't so much identify with and i felt a little bit like 
I just didn't understand what was going on and I didn't understand maybe why, yeah, I wasn't able to make a lot of friends or I wasn't able to fit in or I wasn't able to understand, yeah, perhaps like the larger culture. And so anyway, and then, so yeah, I started writing these memories about growing up in Texas, trying to mask what hurt or uh, misunderstanding I felt with that place through humor um, and ended up, um, yeah, winning the Scribe Nonfiction Prize for that. And then, and then I had, yeah, sort of this larger, larger book line attack that, um, um, yeah, ended up getting published by Scribe. And then, um, yeah, and then the downfall sort of, sort of started happening after that, I suppose. Yeah, you were telling me before that after Line Attack came out, that's when kind of these migraines started that are, I guess, the inspiration for your book, Train Lord. Do you want to tell us about that and when they started and I guess when you knew it was pretty serious? Mm, yeah, I mean, at the end of my university degree, I, I specifically remember one time where I think it was my final assignment um, at RMIT and I was trying to write this piece and and I'd, I'd sort of had a few of these migraines before, but this one felt a little bit different. And it was the first one that lasted um, two or three days. And I got to the point where I knew all I had to do was just finish this assignment, but I, would, but I was unable, my triggers seemed to be the laptop screen and um, the uh, phone screen and then later books and anything up close and lights. And But at that time it was just a screen. So I remember just trying to like, I would type with my eyes closed and then, and then once every sentence or two, I would open them very quickly and then close them again. And by the end of them, by the end of that assignment, um, yeah, I was just so incapacitated that all I could do was, um, I think I, yeah, I sort of just like limped down to the chemist and, and, you know, explained that I was, I didn't know what it was necessarily, but I, I told them that it felt like I'd been hit in the back of the head by a shovel, that that my entire sort of vision would kind of like black out and blot and I, and I wasn't able to, it, it always got worse whenever I looked at the screen. Um, and, you know, thankfully they gave me some um, migraine medication and some codeine and some um, muscle relaxants, which, which helped, but it was scary for me because, you know, in an increasingly digital world and also wanting to be a writer, um, this thing, this thing that was happening to my body, I didn't understand why and there seemed to be no answer to it and other than this temporary sort of you know taking taking some drugs to make the pain go away um it did go away uh and then basically yeah maybe uh and a year and a half later when i um, when that book Lion Attack came out, I was flying down to Melbourne and I was working on a short story um, in the airport and the same thing happened again. It just felt like, like I, I can still remember the, um, uh, the sort of veins on the um, side of my face started like popping out and my eyes went super bloodshot and that feeling again of being hit in the head by a shovel and that reverberation that slowly spread over my scalp and um, made me, yeah, sort of like, uh, the, the pain is is unimaginable. It felt like being electrocuted sort of 
over and over again and just unable to to yeah open my eyes but I had to do the launch um and I probably got really drunk and I managed to get through it but um yeah that one lasted for about five days and I just sort of tried to ignore it and then I flew back to Sydney and I thought okay so how am I gonna what do I need to do now? And, and it was a grant and I ended up trying to apply for this grant. And then um, again, the same thing happened, but I just kept pushing through and I, and I just kept looking at the screen and pushing through and pushing through and pushing through. And then at a certain point, it felt like something in my head snapped. It was this like audible, like sound. And then I yeah fell over. I remember I, I put this in the book, but I fell over. I sort of army crawled, um, I think I had to vomit and I army crawled like outside to the park next to my house and I, and I just vomited and I just lay there. And, and then that, that migraine lasted about 10 months, um, which, you know, is, uh, <laughs> it was horrific. And um, at worst for me, it, I guess, made me feel like everything I worked so hard for, for this book, Lion Attack, you know, I was unable to promote it. I was unable to, read from it I was unable to um yeah it I didn't understand um it felt like the largest betrayal from myself by myself after everything I'd worked so hard for and um yeah at a certain point you know 10 months later sort of um or no doctors could help me no um, no one had any answers and I was unable to find or figure out those answers because by researching, it would make the pain worse. Um, and so, yeah, I, I almost jumped in front of a train, um, which I'm not proud of, but at the time it was something that it's not that I wanted to die. I just, I just needed the pain to end. Um, and then, yeah, I won't uh, sort of go into that a bit more, but it's in the book, but what I would put down to sort of divine, an intervention or a miraculous um, occurrence that didn't happen um, and eventually I returned to Brisbane and sort of um, yeah spent three months loosely recovering there. Yeah and I think like you're saying the really cruel part about this is is that you're a really promising young writer and all of a sudden not only can you not write you can't look at screens you can't do any creative work you can't read you can't do any of those things that are so vital to a writer and anyone's creative life and then eventually after recovering to some degree not being able to write or do anything like that still you got a job working on the sydney railways didn't you mm. yeah well i suppose what happened was in in brisbane um i saw someone that i called the healer and he wasn't a real doctor but he claimed to know how uh, the head worked and so um, I yeah ended up visiting him and he's and he manipulated all the pain uh, sorry all the muscles and the nerves in my neck at the time um, you know it was miraculous because it felt well it was the first time in 10 the pain did go away and that was the first time in 10 months that that had happened but um, it was largely a band-aid solution and so I spent the those three months largely just with my mother, um, you know, uh, she telling me that, you know, we'd spend 10 seconds and then 20 seconds and then a minute sitting in front of the, com 
not only the computer, but just sitting in chairs, because by that point, I conditioned myself to believe that sitting down would give me this pain that not, yeah, that I had so many triggers that it seemed impossible to function other than that to just lie on my back. And so this, this treatment that this doctor had told me, which was, yeah, um, manipulating these nerves would take the pain away um, temporarily, I suppose. And it also meant that as long as I didn't do any of my triggers for a time, then I could live a more or less normal life. I still remember going to the library and um, getting Laurie Moore's bark and Luke Carmen's An Elegant Young Man and Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. And these were the first books I could read in so long and lying down on the carpet of my childhood bedroom, or at least my adolescent bedroom, and um, pushing my neck into the ground and, and holding these books at arm length above me, because um, if I did that, then, then again, for some reason, the pain wouldn't happen. Anyway, after three months of returning, not to a normal by any means, but to a perhaps way that I felt like I, I had some some tools in my belt and I was able to cope I returned to Sydney because I I needed to get on with my life and I needed a job um, and so I took two painkillers and I just googled no experience full-time Sydney just to see what would come up and one of the first ones was a job on the railway with um, Sydney trains so I applied there might have been 40,000 people who also applied you know it's a government job with no experience that pays really well um, and for whatever reason, I think there were like 20 people who could, um, there were positions for 20 people. And um, uh, for whatever, you know, after five rounds of interviews and a role play and um, a drug, several drug tests and all of these things, I was able to get this job. And um, again, another miracle. And what it enabled me to do was, you know, basically spend after going to train school for six months, which again, it involved every morning I'd wake up and I'd do 50 neck rotations one way, 50 the other way. I'd do all these twists and these turns because I'd convince myself as long as I did that. And then if I went to the bathroom after um, an hour and a half of, of studying, you know, and thankfully it was largely on, on, on paper and I'd excuse myself and do these things again. And, and I would, I would tell myself it would buy myself time, but in the end, I, it enabled me to have a job which largely didn't rely on technology because I just went around and around the Sydney train network, making announcements, opening and closing doors, um, more or less being a safety officer. And, you know, in hindsight, the, the metaphor is beautiful, right? You know, you're going around and around without going anywhere, sort of looking at your own life and the lives of others, and you've finally got enough money um, to... to you know, live your life to a certain way. But at the time it was, it was just a job out of necessity. Um, but one that, yeah, did end up saving me. And um, at a certain point, um, you know, I, the, the beautiful thing about the job was that um, beyond being told what to do and not having to freelance, uh, you know, you were treated like an infant again, which largely I was because I was learning how to reintroduce myself to life. And so uh, being able to have a piece of paper that said you need to be here at this time and you're going to take your train from here to here and your break's going to be here and you're going to get paid regularly um, between stations, 
uh, it was brilliant because I would have about two minutes and that was about my capacity to write before I could mm. feel again, this pain returning. And so I would, I had a pencil and a small notebook that I titled uh, the migraine handbook. And I would just sort of start trying to sketch the outlines of these memories from that time with the migraine when I had also lived in Sydney and um, yeah, they, they progressively grew um, you know, they, they piled up. And, and I think what's interesting about train load as well is it was a direct response to the railway, not only about the railway, because it is written in those sort of short ep episodic chapters. And mm -hmm. largely they were because I wrote them, um, in pencil on paper between stations while working on the train. One of the really beautiful things that happens in this novel as well is that you feel yourself being able to be a creative person again through this job. And kind of in a in a fun way, but like you talk about a lot about your colleagues and you know the people and the events that happen on the railways, but also about you kind of making jokes during these announcements and almost like having a like kind of vicarious stand-up career, like as an announcer <laughs> on these trains, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, I mean that was a highlight. I think, you know. <sighs> You know, I I was still dealing with a with a lot of chronic pain at that time, um, and you know, in my back, in my neck, occasionally back in my head, and you know, sometimes you'll do anything to distract yourself from the utter boredom of it, to be honest. And um, and so I just started making these funny announcements, like these really dad joke announcements. Like I wanted it to be the lamer the better, and. <laughs> And so, you know, when we get to Como, I'd say like, attention customers, next stop is Como, named after the Holden Como door. <laughs> I do this little laugh after, and then I'd look at people on the camera and I could see them laughing. And, <laughs> and then I'd, we'd get to Ashfield and I'd say, attention customers, next stop is Ashfield. But for all you singles out there, we call it Pashfield. Mm -hmm. And then I tell everyone to kiss. <laughs> and then I like it was a little it was a little loose um and I thought you know perhaps I might get in trouble for it but in the end I ended up getting on my official file people would tweet or write in that they'd really loved an announcement at a certain time of the day and and I think you know it was beautiful because the train is you know the great leveler it's something that more or less every person has had an experience with and and millions of billions of people around the world catch it every day it's something that brings people together and so through humor um it was yeah extremely uh beautiful to sort of watch this level of um community if sporadic that that could happen in certain spaces um that could bring people's defenses down that could take people out of um their iphones or their terrible days or you know it was a it, it was a space of sort of salvation and hope briefly and and i enjoyed doing it cool yeah we used to take the train a lot around Sydney, especially for school. And I would have really liked to have like some really good announcements on the train. <laughs> I remember like, I do remember getting one. Uh, I think we were heading to a Redfern and someone made the old joke about getting off at Redfern, um, which is, a, that's a good joke, but yeah. That, I know, <laughs> no one listening to this will get that joke, but um, but essentially <laughs> like that's the, you know, it's the, get, it's the, I guess, getting to, let's say getting to third base. That's it. Let's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much the only one I remember ever hearing on a train. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I just put on Irish accents and tell people like, if they were getting to King's Cross and it's 
it's like that's that's the place we're gonna send it tonight to like i just do like stupid things um (laughs) but yeah i mean even the whole like history of the trains like apparently the train guards used to deal heroin in the 90s because that was the you know the the drop-off points that would run like clockwork you'd know where to be um there was and like the stories that came out out of it like like people used to drink um three beers on the way to waterfall and three on the way back and so that line out to waterfall was known as a six pack and instead of (laughs) instead of waiting in the in the you know uh government um office that we all sit in now while we wait for our trains people would wait at the pub and Mm. then the managers would call the publican and tell barry needs to run a train out to richmond and barry would say that people were too drunk to be able to do it send jeff so (laughs) it was it was really like quite it was like the wild west basically and um yeah it was i found it fascinating uh, so we grew up in Mortdale, which i'm sure you yeah. know very well on yeah, that yeah. waterfall line and i can actually yeah. vouch for that story because the pub across the road <laughs> which still to this day has like um topless night i think it's tuesday tuesday tits yeah. out i think it is yeah. something like that yeah anyway so um yeah it's always full of rail workers and yeah if it, whether it's post or pre-shift, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did you realise that this, these notes you were taking and stuff like that would make it into a book? I think it felt very much to me, I, I felt two things. The first, that I was never sure that what I was writing I was going to say be publishable, but I always believed it could be publishable. I think what I meant more was that I was writing this book first and foremost because I felt like there was this not only story inside me, but there was an Oliver who was a character version of myself who was more or less me, but was not me due to that person living in my head and in the past. And while I had survived the migraine, I felt felt that this version of myself in these notes that I was writing had not. And so therefore that narrative lived inside me and I needed to take all this pain that had happened and I needed to alchemize it or I needed to at least make sense of it. And through writing these notes, it was as if I was building a storytelling world that this other Oliver had suddenly been placed into. And I knew that if I stopped writing, if I stopped building his world, if I stopped uh, creating the rooms that he had lived in and the the parks that he'd gone and run and done push-ups in to try and take away the pain and, and the relationships that he'd gone through, if I abandoned him, then in many ways that narrative would stay inside me and would rot and I would never be able to move on with my life. So I had a friend read the book not so long ago, and he told me that he said, it felt like you were writing for your life. And I think that's pretty true because it very much, yeah, I'm just repeating myself, but it felt like there was some amount of trauma and poison inside me and I needed to make sense of it. And I needed to rewrite that narrative. And maybe coming back to something that we said at the start, I didn't know how to do it because even now when I talk about a 10-month migraine, it sounds unfathomable. 
it, it's before I had suffered chronic pain, I had no idea what that experience would be like. I thought it was something that, you know, if you just get on with or you uh, take a couple of Panadol, but you certainly don't complain about it. And you certainly don't, you know, miss work because of it. But for me, it upended my life and almost drove me to take that life. And so I, the way I approached it, I guess, was... I, I knew that this story would never be able to be told in a linear fashion, largely because, you know, chronic pain is something that repeats and goes over and over and over again. And so I wanted to bring people as close to the experience of that 10 month migraine and ongoing chronic pain as possible. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that, well, first of all, I just kept writing those short chapters and I and I would eventually, when I was able to, put them in a Word document. And I had all these paragraphs I knew would slot in somewhere. And I knew that basically this structure that started taking place was like the migraine was in the middle like a sun. And then each chapter, and I called them essays, which just that definition means to try. I was trying to make sense of this experience. So each essay that surrounded this central migraine I viewed as like a planet. And I viewed those planets perhaps wrapped in a sheet of glass that had been smashed with a hammer. So when the light refracted back to that central experience, it wasn't going to go directly. It wasn't going to create a full, complete, 100% truthful picture of what happened but it was going to approximate it. It was going to sort of try and get at the outlines. And as a composite of all of these different ways I could circle that central experience, then the reader and myself might gain perhaps even a more truer understanding of what this thing was. And I guess to get back to your question, when did I know that it might be publishable as a book? You know, like I said, you know, I'd, I'd taken, after two years on the railway, I I, uh, I felt like, you know, and whether this is true or not, this is just what I felt, but I felt like I'd sort of been forgotten by Australian literature and I knew I probably wasn't going to get any grants and I knew that I didn't really have a, that much shot. No agents really wanted to know about it. No, no one was that interested, basically. And so I'd saved up 25 grand from working on the railway and I decided that I was going to, basically invest in myself and spend every last cent trying to write this book. And so I quit the railway, which my coworkers told me I was mad because they were like, this is a government job. This is golden handcuffs. You're on house money. You can retire. You know, you're in like over hundred K a year. Why are you giving this up? Um, but again, for me, it felt like I was writing for my life. Like I had to do it. And so, um, yeah. So I, like I said, I moved to Spain and, and then to Albania and then to Georgia. And um, and then by the time I got home, I had, um, yeah, I sort of had about $600 left. And um, I will say something else quite quickly. Um, at a certain point, basically shortly before I left for Spain, um, a few interesting things happened, which... I chose to think made me believe that I was on the right path. And the first was that I um, borrowed this book from the library, which was a book on dreams, because I've been having these nightmares and I wanted to make sense of them. And 
I'd already booked my air, um, air ticket to, to Barcelona. And in this dreams book, there was a bookmark. And on the bookmark, when I eventually read it, it said Biblioteca de Catalunya. So um, Catalunya libraries. And I thought, fuck me, like, that's pretty interesting. But I didn't read too much in, into it. I flew to Barcelona um, through a mutual friend. I found a um, I found an apartment on Carrel del Carme in Raval, and um, and it was really hot. And I remember I'd sit up at night in this little room that I paid four hundred and fifty euro for a month, just trying to find a way into this book, just trying to write and write and write, and just sweating. And it was yeah, it was it was it was a difficult time. And I think you know also kind of leaving everything I'd known. I felt like I felt pretty raw generally um, and I was more emotional than I perhaps would have liked to have been. But when you're spending enough time in a, in a book that was sort of like the one I was trying to write um, that happened anyway. So one day uh, I sort of, yeah, just like was at my wits end and um, I didn't know what I was doing with my life. Didn't know why I was spending all this money, had no backup plan was, was sort of questioning everything that I was trying to do and, I took out this bookmark and I uh, and I tried to find out where um, I was like, I wonder where this library is, you know, let's just, you know, let's look. And I typed it into Google and the little blue dot went literally about 20 meters across the road. And <laughs> and I couldn't believe that out of the whole of Barcelona or Catalonia, that this place in my dreams book from Sydney was across the road from the apartment that I'd rented. And so I walked over there and I sat on the steps and I'd been reading a lot of Bolaño at the time. And I knew Bolaño had lived in Barcelona um, at a certain point, I think in the seventies or in the eighties before he moved to Blaine's. And, um, uh, and I thought, okay, well, like, I wonder where he lived. And mm -hmm. so I uh, went on a sort of deep dive and did a little bit of research and found this old article translated into English published in the eighties in some newspaper and, and then I found that address and it was also in Raval. And so I typed it in and then I started walking and I'm walking and I'm walking and, and I realized that I'm walking more or less to the same cafe that I'd gone to every day to write. And then I end up out front of the cafe and it's the same address and around the corner, which I'd never seen is a plaque that said Roberto Bolaño used to write here and lived on the second apartment above. And I felt this intense shiver kind of come over my body because, you know, I've, I felt it was as if the universe was kind of saying like, you know, you are, it is hard, it is tough, but there are certain markers that, you know, potentially remind you that there is something larger guiding you. I think when you, when you really go all in on something and the third the third bizarre thing that happened was that I went down to Granada and I visited the house of um, Frederico Garcia Lorca um, mm. because an ex-girlfriend had been obsessed with um, Lorca and said that Lorca used to visit him in his dreams and it felt intensely important to visit this house. Um, after the tour, I bought a book of Lorca's and um, I just picked it at random and, and I really felt like this book was calling me and I wanted to give this book to my housemate, Maite, who had um, been gracious enough to allow me to live in her home and to rent an apartment and basically make my life in Barcelona easier. 
And when I gave it to her, her face went white. And she said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't understand. I was like, what? What? Mm. And she said that several years earlier, she had had this book and she'd been with a boyfriend and they'd had a terrible fight and she'd thrown it out the window in a rage. But she'd always prayed that this book would return to her in some capacity. And what I realized was that perhaps by me bringing this, I thought I'd gone to Barcelona to write a book, but how much more humbling and what a greater larger narrative that perhaps my the only reason I ended up in Barcelona was to deliver. I'm a secondary character. I'm not the protagonist. And I'd gone down to Granada to just deliver this book to my housemate. I'm a messenger. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was these kind of stories that, um, yeah, I suppose like kept me going. And, um, and then, and then I found an agent in Ireland through a, through a friend. So um, after I'd sort of applied to 12 different ones and no one wanted to know about it, she read the first 10 pages and signed it immediately. And wow. in the end, it was only because of her that I got my deal at Penguin UK. And um, yeah, um, life sort of changed dramatically through that deal. And then also through receiving the Martin Bequest, which both of those things sort of happened when I returned to Australia and was down to my last 800 or so dollars. So, Wow. Yeah. You're, you were also telling me about another coincidental meeting with a great Australian writer out in far, what is it, Western Victoria? Uh, do you want to tell us about that story? Yeah. Yeah. So um, on the way home from, um, from Georgia in 2019, the first time, um, and this is in the weeks before COVID happened, I'd met a few friends in Bali and um, um, I'd also uh, got involved with the um, magazine um, Apartamento and um, I was speaking to the editor there um, and we were both saying how much we loved, you know, the the great Australian writer Gerald Bernane and we wanted to, um, you know, uh, basically Apartamento is a magazine that goes into um um, pre- prestigious artist houses and not only shoots their spaces but interviews them about their life and about creativity and how they how it is that they do the thing they do and so um, I needed I didn't know how exactly to get his I didn't even know if he had a phone number I didn't know how to get in contact with him and so I emailed um, Iva at Giramondo and um, sort of explained what I wanted to do. And he got back saying that he had spoken to Gerald and he was not against the idea, but um, he wanted me to understand that he lived, um, you know, in his son's house in a, um, um, you know, in a one, one lined room um, that, um, you know, he, he wanted me to understand the space basically. Um, and so, um, Ivor and I went back and forth on email and I needed to convince him that I was absolutely serious about this interview, which I was, and that, um, you know, I'd read Gerald's work and I was intensely interested in it. And, um, eventually I got Gerald's phone number and I left Gerald a message basically saying that I, I would love to interview him. And if there was a time to get back to me, um, Gerald sent me a, I hope I'm not going to get in trouble for this, but Gerald sent me <laughs> <laughs> Gerald sent me a thousand word text message um <laughs> basically saying I don't know what if anything 
gave you to understand that I would be likely to give an interview. On the contrary, I thought your um, your request was preposterous. And he goes on for a thousand words um, saying all the reasons why he doesn't want to um, do this interview. And I wrote him a thousand word text message back saying, um, I completely understand where you're coming from, um, but I wanted to sort of uh, further explain the reasons why I um, wanted to interview you and much like in your fiction, um, which uh, occurs from the um, planes and spaces of your own mind, you know, I also, I basically told him that during the migraine, um, when I was lying in bed, um, I would travel to places that did and did not happen. And I would invent alternate realities and stories. And for me, those experiences of translation, and, and I would call all writing translation, translation from the mind to the page. And those experiences of translation were just about the most uh, real truth that I'd ever encountered because I wasn't, I was literally just storytelling in my mind and not to the page. And much like with Gerald and his um, fictional horse racing game that he plays using literature and um, I believe rolling of dice, which he says was his final truth and all fiction was used to get to this game. I wanted to know, you know, basically whether that was true and um, his um, approach to creativity. And I also mentioned that, um, you know, uh, Will Haywood, who I knew when I used to live in Melbourne and, and he'd gone out and visited Gerald uh, many years early and interviewed him. And um, I told him I was selfish. I wanted my own experience meeting, you know, Gerald Manane too. And so he got to back to me about a few hours later and said that he was at leisure at that time of day, but that he would get back to me the following day and then he said that the issue on the matter of apartamento was final that that would not be going ahead but based on our chat that he would agree to have me um as a guest in his men's shed on a friday to be decided um he said that um uh I could photograph him one time and one time only um, and not for a part of mentor um, and that he would like our discussion to be informal. But if I chose to record it, then and if I wanted to publish it later, that was up to me. And then he said, it's not what you wanted, but it's better than a poke in the eye with a burnt stick to quote an old Australian saying. And so I, uh, I agreed and told him I was looking forward to drinking the homebrew. And he said, OK. And then COVID and lockdown and everything happened. And I think maybe six months later or four months later, um, I emailed him again saying, or messaged him again saying that um, there was a brief time when I could, you know, maybe come down. And by that stage, he just wasn't interested again. And fair enough. Like, he's like, I'm 82. Um, you know, I've, I've had enough. I, I don't need any more stories out on me, blah, blah, blah. And I totally understood. And so that was sort of the end of that. At the same time, I'd been um, really trying to write something after finishing Train Lord, which, you know, very much for me sort of felt like literary heroin. It was this story that had almost taken my life that I'd managed to turn into something. And I basically didn't know how to write anything with the same intensity or honesty after that. And I really struggled uh, again with lack of purpose. And But 
in the end, I uh, I ended up moving down to Tasmania because um, I'd, um, I'd had this grant to move to Georgia and I wanted to spend time with my brother and sister who both lived there. Um, and I and I also was intensely interested in rock climbing and they're both, um, they've been both climbing for about 10 years. And so I thought if I couldn't write with my fingers then perhaps I could do something else with my fingers. Perhaps I could support myself physically while hanging from rocks with my fingers. And I, and I, and I wanted to do something that would give me the same rush that writing had once done. Um, and um, they both can be exhilarating and terrifying. This is all to say I spent um, three to five months basically climbing almost every day with the, with my brother and sister and sort of going under an apprenticeship where you learn not uh, yeah rope management and knots and getting stronger and technique and and climbing outside and how to clean at the top of the climb and how to basically climb so you don't die. Uh, and and then I went on a climbing trip to Mount Arapiles, um, which is in rural Victoria. And so by that point, I'd kind of like, again, abandoned literature. I, I didn't know, really know what I was going to do. And I just lived for two weeks um, in a tent again, um, just climbing every day in rural Victoria. And, and one afternoon I'd gone back to um, some uh, swimming place where you could take a shower for, um, you know, like five bucks or something. And I was driving back and the sun was going down. And I saw this sign that said grope. And I was like, grope? <laughs> and, and I was like, Jesus, like that's where Gerald Renane lives. And so I got back and I told everyone this story and I sort of like, yeah, like read out these text messages and people were like, what the hell? Like, and I, I was like, should I message him? They're like, you have to message him. But, and so I sent him a message that basically was like, I'm not stalking you. Like, I'm not, you know, but again, through this sheer coincidence, I find myself outside the town that you live in. I'll be here for another few days if you'd like to meet up if you'd like to um whatever i would i would love to do that and i'm free and gerald got back to me saying that um if i was free the next afternoon at 4 p.m then he would meet me at the abandoned golf course outside garot and i was like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and so you know i was like am i gonna be murdered <laughs> <laughs> But um, I drove out there and I sat at the picnic table and he drove up and he got out and we've had a really lovely chat for about two hours. And he said that he had thought, given my initial message that I'd left on his machine, that I was quite arrogant. But after talking to me and seeing that my heart was in the right place and that um, I had an intense interest in literature, um, and especially when I had told him about how I felt like there was a younger version of or a smaller version of Oliver who was living inside this fictional storytelling world that I had to get him through. And it was like I was holding his hand, trying to get him through this world of pain and that I could not abandon him. And he said, now, Oliver, when you say that, when you say that to me now, that is very interesting to me. That is very interesting. And we kind of hit it off after that. And I asked him what um, book or story he would recommend that I read. And I knew he only read Borges, but he also said the Melville um, Bartleby story. Mm. He said everything you need to know about um, writing is is within that is within that story. And yeah, and then he told me he was um, going to mention me and put me in his archives. And and we left and and shook hands and. Yeah, it was a beautiful meeting by, you know, obviously one of Australia's or the world's greatest writers. And it still, 
you know, uh, floors me that he gave me the time and I was just incredibly and intensely grateful. Wow. Did you send him your book? I didn't send him my book. I feel like, I feel like you get, I love the book and I believe wholeheartedly within the book. However, I feel like I want to send him my next book. I feel like you get one shot with Gerald and, (laughs) and I feel like maybe that book, not that it's too emotional, but I want I want to send him I want to send him something I still with every day that I write I want to grow more as a writer and I want to I want to I want to try and reach more interesting and more intense and different places and like with every book with lion attack that was the best book i could write at the time and train lord was the best book i could write at the time but i think rather than dwell on those places and those yeah areas that you'd explored i'm just at this point now interested in moving forward and learning and um yeah i i, I think because i'd already finished the book a year earlier then and even though i couldn't write i knew that the the my that the best was ahead of me um and so because of that reason it, it's probably a question of timing like had, had i met him uh, closer to when i had finished the book then i probably would have shown him the book but i think because of that distance in time i wanted to um yeah uh i want to send him something that i don't even know how to write yet <laughs> You might have to put some more horse racing stuff in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael Winkler, speaking of great Aussie writers, told me about your mm-hmm. book. And in a way, I feel like Grimish and Train Lord, they're both kind of meditations on pain. How mm. Have you been f- floored by the reception your book's got? Um, I think, well, it's, I mean, it's really hard to know kind of the reception that the book has had because living in Georgia, which is, you know, like, nowhere near australia and mm-hmm. very far from the uk um i yeah it's 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 hard to know because i'm not in 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 the places in which it's being sold and so you know much like with line attack there's been some in- incredible reviews that you know um, you know, BJ's um, review in the Guardian and profile like completely floored me, and I feel so grateful and indebted to her. And Australia is lucky to have her. And um, you know, like yeah, the reviews in in the conversation and and these places. And I think I think the people who really got it are people who have had or have been close to people who have also suffered um these sort of very insular and very invisible um traumatic experiences and perhaps the people that haven't understood that so much which again i can understand because like i said before i'd experienced something like this it was something foreign and alien um yeah people have seemed to like it which always makes me feel uh yeah very very grateful but yeah, I, I would be lying if I said like I, I'm not really too sure how it's going <laughs> because I'm not in in those spaces where it's at. But yeah, whenever people reach out or whenever you know um, 
yeah, some someone messages me to say that they've enjoyed it, that means the world because beyond, you know, the fact that it allows me to continue trying to live this life as a writer, the other main reason I wrote the book was because, you know, I, I wanted anyone else who had ever um, suffered that invisible thing and being alone to know that they're not alone and that, you know, I do see them and that much like other literature that I had read after the fact of my own um, suffering enabled me to tell my story and to gain some amount of catharsis and healing that, you know, uh, f f that seeing them just knowing that they're not alone can give you hope too. So, Oliver, I know one of the things that this uh, book, I guess, turned into before it was published was a stage show that you ran at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. Do you want to tell us about that process of adapting it how it looks on stage and also can you give us the exciting news about where you're headed mm, so um <clears throat> i guess when i was working on the trains you know uh when i felt like i had the courage to kind of show some of these people these stories um i lived in the loft of a very hot um sort of attic space I, I guess you would call it in in um in sydney and and i would slowly start inviting some of my friends up and when I write, I always generally listen to the same song over and over. And so I would just start reading a few select friends, these paragraphs um, of, of Train Lord and that I'd also written to these songs. And so it felt important to read them over these songs and they, yeah, the people seem to like them. Um, and, and then I was running a, a literature storytelling night um at Frida's in Sydney for a couple of years um and basically uh I, we would get anyone who wanted to read they could read just five minutes and then I would start reading excerpts of, of this pro book in progress that um, I had made and before I left to Spain I decided to do what I called my trial show so it was but it was just like 30 minutes and I've memorized 30 minutes of the book and I performed this over music and um, I just wanted sort of to tell people my, my story basically and why I was leaving and, and that went well and then I decided to do this absurd thing where I said I'm going to go to Edinburgh uh, Adelaide Fringe and I'm going to yeah with like no theater experience I'm going to put on a show and so uh yeah I hired this theater after everything was said and done spent about five thousand dollars kind of doing it but um I in the end probably through the help of um a friend who ended up doing all my PR for free um people started coming to the show and um, it ended up winning a best theater award and um basically the show is me on stage I've memorized an hour of the book that I've sort of remixed into a different order and I perform it over music over the songs that I wrote the book to and then there's also a screen which has a projection of the train tracks running um that I shot from the back of the train as well as a visual component by my friend Kat Chelos, who um, created a, um, a video for me. And so, yeah, performed at Adelaide Fringe, which was, um, yeah, such an eye-opening experience, you know, um, didn't really have any clue what I was doing, but I just wanted to this story to reach more people. And, um, and then, yeah, went to Sydney Fringe and um, that all um, completely sold out and was lucky enough to be able to do it during covid 
Um, so yeah, and then now I've decided to do Edinburgh Fringe, um, which is obviously the big one and we'll probably lose uh, heaps of money, but um, it feels important to, yeah, I want to develop more of a, um, a position in the UK and I think the show um, will hopefully resonate. Um, so I will be performing the uh, stage show of train lord from the 4th to the 12th um, of august and at a place called um, the space uk and uh, more details will be coming about uh, about that shortly awesome that would be amazing i would love to come along and see that come on over come on over there'll be a free ticket for you <laughs> yeah i'm sure i'm sure the edinburgh fringe will definitely like pay for that so <laughs> yeah. i'll have a word <laughs> hmm. Can I ask you, what are you working on as a follow-up? So I'm working on my debut fiction book at the moment. Um, I got obsessed with the Lada Neva, which is a car, an old Soviet car. Mm. It's an old 4x4 Soviet car. that um, I remember them. They sold them in Australia for a little while. Yeah, there's a couple in Australia. Yeah. I remember I saw one in Tasmania in, um, in, in this rural farm that... <laughs> uh we were i don't even remember where it was but it was like covered in hay and beneath a shed and just completely like stuffed but yeah like it's and then you know and this isn't strictly what i'm writing about but my initial idea was you know imagining sort of three different narratives where it's like you know you imagine what that car went through in throughout the Soviet Union, whether it was made in Ukraine or in Russia or in Georgia or, you know, they're even, I think, made in Italy for a while. And um, and for that journey to get to Australia, you know, so like that narrative in itself is fascinating. But there's something also about, you know, this is a car that hasn't changed um, more or less ever. Like even now, if you buy it, it still doesn't have airbags. It's still, it's just got power steering. There's a sort of like relentless honesty and a relentless devil may care sort of attitude to this mountain goat of a vehicle that can literally go anywhere that has survived in Antarctica more than any other car for like 20 years um it doesn't have yeah the frills of 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 whatever else is going but it can almost like there are spaces where it will not get bogged and, and other cars that are like five times more expensive will. And, and yeah, we rented one when we were in, um, in Georgia for a while. And um, had I stayed, I probably would have bought one. So mm -hmm. it, and it, and, and I think this also comes back to this idea that um, Amanda Lowry talks about, um, you know, in each work, a work needs to have what is called like the enigmatic object. So it's not necessarily a metaphor, but it is a poetic device that speaks to a novel and carries the narrative load of a novel. And so in my book, it was sort of the train. The train is the great leveler. It moves around. It moves in circles. It moves from A to B and back. It's, a, it's something that everyone can get on and it makes the um, personal universal and the universal personal. In Charles Dickens, it's the fog. Um, it's in this book that I'm thinking about, um, yeah, it's this sort of, you know, it's essentially a death vehicle, <laughs> but it's also a vehicle that can be fixed largely with a hammer and especially you have parts, but you do that. So it's a vehicle that can go forever, but can also 
kill you if you're if you're not careful and it's a vehicle that perhaps when someone's at the end of their tether on life and doesn't have anything less less to lose and is looking to reimagine wonder and awe into their life it's a it's a vehicle that can take you to places that were not expected so that's all I'll, I'll say for that hmm. about what I'm working on right now but um yeah much like I think writing a book is is sort of like doing a puzzle except for you can't see the picture on the front of the box and the pieces are constantly changing and for me when I'm trying to write a book I'm always looking for that voice and for that what I would call the keystone to the whole thing and when I can figure that out um, and I've never written in third person and this this is in third person and I want it to be a pretty large departure from anything I've written before so mm. it's taken a long time to kind of get to this point now and I I potentially might have a voice and some characters I want to explore so I feel yeah really rejuvenated and um, yeah looking to to connect probably Australia Georgia and France um, in a in a in a narrative so we'll see okay that sounds good I like the premise yeah. cool cool uh, do you want to tell me about your gateway books? What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was young, you know, like, I mean, the first obvious one would be The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar by Roa Dahl. Oh, like, I love that. Like, that book especially was just, mm. man, like, it had the darkness, it had the humour, it had the wonder. He does the Borges thing where there's mm. a story within the story where it's written, you know, in first person and it, and in, in that book it's a diary, you know. Like, I love that. I love that. And, yeah, playing with, with point of view and playing with, yeah, humour and darkness and then you have sort of an anti-hero but there's growth from A to B and, and it's to do with magic. Like, you know, come on, mm. it's a it's a story for anyone who wants to discover again, not only wonder and awe, but that menace rippling sort of under the surface. Um, fantastic. Like mm. unbelievable for me. Um, I even, I, I reread it to my girlfriend recently. Um, she'd never read it and, and we read it over a series of evenings together and it was beautiful. Um the other obvious one was just would just be the um, the Tintin comics that my dad read me when I was young. You know, again these very escapist, um, humorful um, adventures that you know for a young a young person sort of growing up in Canberra and discovering you know about ancient Incan civilizations and yeah, just total imagination explosions. Just absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, I haven't read Henry Sugar for years. I remember there was one story in that book, I think it was called The Swan, which I mm. found really, really shocking when I read it. Yeah, but um, that, those stories are just wonderful. Yeah, I've got to go back to them at some point. They're so dark, but they're mm. so, they're like, they're just so ripe for that young mm. person's imagination. And I think why they work is because they don't, I'm not the first person to have said this, but they don't talk down to children. Mm. And children know that there's good and evil in the world, right and wrong. Um, and this blurs the lines between what it makes you question. It opens universes because it makes you question what is right and wrong and why. Mm. Um, yeah, just amazing. Cool. All right. What books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to this year? 
Yeah, so at the moment I'm reading A Fan's Notes by Frederick oh, Exley. Yeah. Yeah. Which a cracker. is um, I love that book. Just yeah, again, blowing my mind. Like, can't believe I hadn't heard of it before. Mm. Just yeah, on a sentence level, the prose is unbelievable. Does that um yeah, like almost very Scott McClanahan thing of um, you know. Uh, creating and releasing tension through um, through joke and through um, melancholy, joke melancholy kind of um, just weighted beautifully. And um, yeah, I mean, you just have to look at the reviews and the people who revere that book, and they call it like a like a a cult cult book kind of like it's like that step kind of beyond. I mean, yeah. So really, really enjoying that. And then the other book that I'm reading at the moment is um, uh, uh, Two Serious Ladies by Jane Bowles because um, I'd read a lot of Paul Bowles, but I'd never read um, his wife, Jane Bowles. And, mm. yeah, it's it's also just so dry and funny and just about these women who drink and husbands who leave them and, like, these yeah, just badass women who just do not care about the um the men sort of in their life and and are very much living life on their own terms and again like yeah they're in Panama and yeah it's just it's so unique and um yeah would would thoroughly recommend it. It's You've got an epigraph from Paul Bowles at the beginning of Train Lord, don't you? Yeah, and and that was from not a book actually, but from a as far as I know, it might be from a book. I haven't read it, but it's from a documentary that's for free on YouTube. Um, and he yeah says it at the very end. Yeah, basically like you know, I can't even remember what it says, but something to the effect of, you know, uh, you don't write um fiction, don't write nonfiction. Even poetry will incriminate you. The best course, um of course in total is to write nothing at all um because yeah because people people are gonna take offense which is a beautifully ironic um yeah passage that i really like yeah and what books are you looking forward to um so i want to read at the moment um willa cather's my antonia mm-hmm. um which has been on my list for a long time but um again scott mcclanahan recommended and said it was one of uh, his favorite books he'd ever read um Robbie Arnett's um Limber Lost um which yeah just looks like an absolute cracker and I ended up yeah meeting up with him when I was living in um Hobart for a while and we were both just kind of floored and blown away by Dennis Johnson's train dreams and mm. um yeah and uh yeah and so yeah I, I've I've like read all the reviews of that book I've like read all the quotes of like and I know it's going to be beautiful and I know it's going to floor me and it's like this book that's it's it's just it's right there but I think I I just need to get through like one or two more because I know once I've read it then I'll never be able to read it again like I just have mm-hmm. this feeling like it's it's this sort of like shimmering piece of literature that I'm yeah really really looking forward to um what else um Constance Debre which uh, Playboy um, she's a French author who's um, used to be a lawyer and um, yeah then yeah has, has become an author and is uh, quite prolific over here and 
um, sort of writes about her queer experience and um, um, I think about her divorce and um, yeah, just getting a whole heap of press and um, she she seems like she right and very she's very interested in form and writes with um like razor sharp intensity and so yeah really looking forward to getting into that um I need to read Cold Enough for Snow I haven't read that yet um but you know obviously won all the prizes everyone's talking about it um I'm really also interested in very short books like 80 to 90 pages that feel expansive but you know uh, 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 yeah, short in um, length. Um, and then Mariana Enriquez is our share of the night, which is going to yes. be my big, huge, huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah, because um, you also interviewed Megan McDowell, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Who's also uh, Alejandra Zambra's translator. Yeah, and I interviewed her as well. Um, oh, cool. For the books, which was, Excellent. yeah, just fascinating and yeah she's such a treasure yeah and yeah so basically anything that she puts out is is gold yeah I agree um yeah no she's like an unbelievable human we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero we're speaking with Oliver Mole this week's episode is sponsored by the town of Garoke it's a great place to visit. We're only 370 k's from Melbourne and we have a great hotel. BTZ listeners will get 50% off their first pot of VB Lager if they use the promo code TRAINLORD. You can also go meet Jared Bedane at the abandoned golf course. It's a great place to talk lit or get killed. Just kidding. We haven't had a murder in the last two weeks. Anyway, come and visit. We'll see you soon. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Oliver's Desert Island Books. Zambia's Bonsai. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember when I first read Bonsai and I've, I've, I've probably read that book a hundred times and I've probably read it to people maybe 30 times because it's a book that you can sit down and there's a very wonderful, intimate thing about, you know, sharing a story with someone and perhaps people who um, have forgotten about literature or don't think they care about it. And it's a, it's the type of book you can read in an afternoon and and it'll just absolutely floor um, sort of anyone who, yeah, who reads it. So, yeah, um, blew me away, still blows me away. Um, yeah, again, Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams, um, but I would also put up there Dennis Johnson's Angels. Um, his first novel, which is just about the most, like, I would call a live novel. I think recently for Rush magazine, they were doing um, a an issue on, um, what's that? Oh, what's it called? What's that TV show that everyone was obsessed with and it's about sex and um, it's... Uh, Richardson or something? That which one? one? Bridgerton, was that it? No. no, okay, yeah, but no, it was like young people, um, euphoria, euphoria. Okay, yeah. Um, and it was their euphoria issue. And they were like, yeah, we're looking for things that are really like upbeat and like summer beach reads and like light. And then, and then I, but I thought they, I just, maybe I knew, but I also just really wanted to recommend this book, Angels. And, <laughs> and so I recommended it, Angels. Um, 
basically yeah just calling it like an existential prayer of a book but also like it is dark like have you read it yeah i have read it ages ago yeah it's dark yeah, it's but very there, dark. Is, there is beauty to be found in those sentences and humanity mm-hmm. to be found in those paragraphs and again you know his son is an author so obsessed with um um catholicism and with the idea of redemption and you know like this character who's in the electric chair who's like and now let me um sink down with uh, with my final breath i'd like to tell you something it's like he finds his own peace sort of at the end of this journey and um anyway just like that book left me gasping for breath um um i don't know how to pronounce this but either tuva or tovianson the summer book Mm-hmm. have you read it i haven't read it i've never read any of her work actually at all yeah so the summer book the winter book um basically like all of her adult fiction is just completely mind-blowing and, and the summer book basically revolves around a grandmother and um a her a grandmother and her granddaughter who live on an island and just walk around the island asking each other questions and there's largely no narrative um, it's completely unsentimental. Um, it talks about loss and family and relationship to nature. And it is like a, a hug and an existential, um, I, yeah, I might say the word prayer again. It's, mm. it's, it's the book that I gift more than any other book saying wow. like, this is the one that you have to read. Um, it's phenomenal. Um, check it out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, poor bowls beneath the sheltering sky again just such a a classic a classic sort of existential text that goes down through the stages of you know hell and um you know in many ways kind of mirrors um um wake and fright um the the the, the novel i mean yeah. more than or also the film, but mm. yeah, it kind of follows that descent into madness. Um, but yeah, just like, you know, put that book down and, and I, yeah, just was kind of shaking. Um, what else have we got? Oh yeah. Also um, Banana, Banana Yoshimoto's Kitchen. I think, you know, on my, on my desert Island books that we've got right now, they're all fairly existential and mm. Banana Yoshimoto's Kitchen is just a, um, a book that has always stayed with me from the moment I read it and um, just, yeah, um, made me, especially during Lion Attack, intensely interested sort of in how to write about the everyday and the domestic space and how to find sort of, if not beauty, then um, how to be interested in those spaces. And yeah, um, her prose is just phenomenal. And I love everything that she writes. Um, Battles in the Desert by Emilio Jose Pacheco. Um, have you read that one? No, not, I never even heard of it. It's, it was re-released recently by New Directions. Um, and he's this um, sort of ubiquitous Mexican author who um, is taught in schools. And this is, again, a novella and tells the story about a young boy who falls in love with his mother, uh, his classmate's mother. Mm-hmm. And sort of um, that mother is uh, may or may not be seeing I think either like the governor general under Pinochet's like regime or, or maybe no, it can't be Pinochet. Sorry. It was something sort of in the Mexican um, space, but uh, yeah, just like 
such a beautifully uh, told from a child sort of perspective, innocent look at utter and horrific danger. And um, the last sort of sentences in that book, it's a book that makes you want to write another book. And Zambra talks about it in his Not to Read and even in um, his latest book, um, what was it called? Zambra's latest book that just oh, came out? Um, the, the, oh, the poet one? That's right, yeah. That's right. Anyway, like even from the opening paragraph, you can see mm-hmm. if you look at Battles in the Desert and Zambra's opening paragraph, you can see um, there's similarities and there's um, influence there. So super mm-hmm. interesting. And then, um, yeah, probably the last one that I'll just say is The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, again, was one of those first books that I read shortly after I could read again. And um, you know, talks about his experiences in the war, but uses fiction and nonfiction to sort of, uh, um, or rather, yeah, truth and lies to talk about an unknowable experience and sort of became like a text that I just immediately engaged with and made me weep, made me laugh. Um, yeah. And then anything by Bologna. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Awesome. Well, probably wrap it up with you before we do do you want to tell us where we can go and get the amazing train lord and where we can reach out and find you online um yeah well my i'm on instagram at train lord and twitter on train lord and hopefully i'll have a website up soon um train lord should be short should be sold in all good bookstores um yeah uh avid reader in brisbane love avid reader um glee books in sydney love glee books um you know neighborhood books in melbourne fuller's in hobart yeah it's it's there it's it hopefully is everywhere and if it's not everywhere you tell them to order the damn thing (laughs) yes it's definitely at readings here and the avenue here i can vouch for that beautiful oh, and i also we already mentioned it but yeah michael michael winkler's grimish is is another book that if if this whole podcast would, could be for anything just go use it to find michael's book and go read that <laughs> good recommendation it is awesome and it's going to be everywhere soon it's going to be all over the world i know I'm so yeah. excited i'm so excited yeah, for it's him. amazing Brilliant. cool all right i will let you go thank you so much for joining me it's been great chatting yeah, really, really appreciate it. And um, hope your headache is or is going away. And um, yeah, have a wonderful evening. Lovely. Thank you. Thanks once again to Oliver Mole. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod. And you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support us by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode very soon.